Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. Today we're, uh, we're reading Short and Deep, Moxon's Master, a uh, short story by Ambrose Bierst, probably first published in 1899 in the San Francisco Examiner, um, April 16th issue. Uh, I had a lot of trouble finding anybody who consistently had a date. Everybody has a different date for it. And everybody has a in different interpretation of what this story is about, um, if they pay attention to it at all. And um, I don't like any of their interpretations. Um, <laughs> I find it to be an incredibly interesting story, and um, I've reclassified it. I, I'm, I probably always had. I look back at an old thing I wrote about it, and basically I could tell in the style of the way I wrote it that I was being evasive, uh, <laughs> in that I didn't offer any particular interpretation so i'm gonna classify this as a kind of a mystery uh or uh riddle story or a problem story um above and beyond the mystery that's set within the text itself so i don't know if that helps you but it, it helped me trying to uh frame it to start looking at it that way Wow. Uh, so let's make sure we're reading the same story. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the story has a first-person narrator. It begins with his question to someone whom we have not yet met. Are you serious? Do you really believe that a machine thinks? And so one way to see the story is as a question about whether or not machines think or yes. more more widely, uh, are machines alive? And there's lots of philosophical discussion uh, between the narrator and uh, Moxon, who is an inventor. Actually, it's mostly the narrator interrogating Moxon and Moxon uh, telling the narrator what Moxon believes uh, about the nature of life and whether or not machines can be alive. It turns out that if, if we are to believe the narrator that in Moxon's machine shop in a room adjoining the one in which the conversation is happening, uh, Moxon uh, has made a mechanical man, a chess player. And uh, after the narrator leaves Moxon's apartments on a dark and stormy night, mm -hmm. uh, he somehow finds himself thinking that maybe some of Moxon's ideas really are right. And he needs to go back and, and inquire more from the, the mind of his master. And that word master is used mm -hmm. of Moxon rather than, uh, than the machine that in fact, according to the narrator, uh, in the course of the storm kills Moxon. Uh, Moxon apparently checkmates the uh, the mechanical man who plays chess with him. The man is so angered that he reaches across the table and uh, knocks everything over and strangles the fellow. We know this because the narrator uh, suddenly has uh, the light between them. The candle has been blown out. 
by the uh, mechanical man arising, but then there is a blinding flash of light on this stormy night, and in that whiteness, that glaring whiteness, the narrator sees the two iron hands uh, gripping the uh, supine moxon. Then all is blackness. Three days later, he awakens in the hospital, and uh, he's told that uh, nobody exactly knows uh, what happened in there. What do you think happened? He's asked by a man named Haley, who is uh, the man who is usually taciturn, we're told by the narrator, but this time is willing to talk. Uh, It is Haley who found the narrator in the burnt house of Moxon. Presumably it burned because it was hit by lightning. And uh, whether or not the narrator's assertion that that's all, that what he's just said has really all happened, uh, he says now that he's older, he's not quite so firm in his beliefs. And that's the end of the story. Uh, if That's sort of how I read the mm-hmm. facts. Of it. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, the, those are certainly the outlines of the facts. Um, and, and as presented, I think that's exactly the conventional way we're supposed to read it or at least the way everyone normally i read it before um one, one of the very first things well, that's I, not how i read it i must oh, tell okay. you i'm simply trying to say what the narrator tells us yeah 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 that's absolutely. that's not how i read the story but i wanted to get the explicit facts before us so that you could then tell me uh, what you discovered in your researches about the various ways of reading it oh man there's so uh, so i, I tracked down a 1970 uh, master's thesis, or maybe it was a PhD thesis, um, and it wasn't really helpful. But it led me to uh, pre to others. There was a more recent science fiction magazine um, attack on another person's theory, uh, which I will briefly mention, perhaps. But actually, the one I found most useful was one that was mentioned in uh, a lot of people's um i and that i had trouble tracking down but again <laughs> i i did the my due diligence and and did it and it was uh a book review from 1925 a magazine called the bookman september 1925 in which uh the reviewer thought that makes the case that if you sit down and read a whole bunch of beers um at once and you do that with the devil's dictionary as well um you can see that this story is somehow uh special and i've got a a big paragraph i'll read uh from this uh her name is edna kenton um i'll read this bierce's thoughtful provision of a glossary to his works offers two definitions that may be quoted just at this point so uh, she's referring to the devil's dictionary which is of course not in this text but packaged in a book might be near near at hand ghost the outward and visible sign of an inward fear and intention the mind sense of prevalence of one set of influences over another set an effect whose cause is imminence immediate or remote or performance of an involuntary act and then she says moxon's master is not one of the frequently cited examples of bierce's art and artfulness and at first glance may seem to hold no commerce with either ghost or intention 
for Moxon's master was no floating wraith, and Moxon's intention is never stated, but Bierce's whole conception of man and his fear lies in this tale and illumines all the others. And I I think that she makes a really good point. She goes on to explain how a whole bunch of the other stories that uh, I'm familiar with um, by Bierce have a kind of sudden horror or fear uh, somehow deeply embedded within the point of the story um, and goes on to, you know, show how that, and I've just highlighted a couple other things here. So she says here, for always in the multiplied works, there is a quote key story that unlocks the others. And above all the door to the author's intention, quote unquote, if ever he has one. And then she says, if man is a machine set in motion by fear and beer saw him so he must write about him so and in the 70 tales in in the midst of life and can such thing be can such things be he most surely does so that that got me to thinking uh in a different way and i i, I want to hear your interpretations but i i think the key is the title and trying to figure out what the title means in relations to various aspects and and parts of the story in different layers of the story, because it can be read in a dozen different ways, at least, I'm thinking. Um, seeing other people's vain, vain attempts at, at attacking it, I, I want to hear yours, <laughs> because I'm worried that um, it's going to be as lame as all of mine. <laughs> well, uh, is that an invitation for me to suggest some ideas here? Yes, please. Um. Edward Moxon was a British poet, uh, a key figure among the Romantics, um, a publisher, uh, and was famous for, among other things, his dismissal of religion. Mm -hmm. uh, Moxon is an unusual name. Uh, I think that there's an allusion to that Moxon, and the question of religion is uh, important to me in this story because after all in certainly Christianity um, we have the notion that God inspired man that is breathed life into man that clay was turned into animate that uh, and the question but Moxon I mean Edward Moxon denies that this Moxon um, who may be someone who mocks on mm -hmm. who makes fun of the narrator uh, is saying just the opposite. He's saying that not only doesn't God, uh, not only uh, isn't life in the things that God breathes life into, life is in everything, right? And he gives us uh, this strange notion that if you can't understand the mechanism behind something, then surely it must have been made by someone who was smart enough to do it. Even the crystallization of water into snowflakes must reflect an intelligent uh, crystallizer. Uh, it is, in fact, coming to believe that idea that turns our narrator's footsteps around as he goes back to learn more about this wonderful idea. Uh, this is, it seems to me, a patently silly thing to believe, that just because you don't understand how something can happen naturally means that it was done by an an, uh, some intelligent person. Beers gives us reasons to know that our narrator has made mistakes. Uh, 
not only that, you know, I think that that was a silly idea in getting a definition of life. Um, the, the narrator has Moxon quote Herbert Spencer's definition. And he says, I read it 30 years ago. He may have altered it afterward for anything I know, but in all that time, I have been unable to think of a single word that could profitably be changed or added or removed. It seems to me not only the best definition, but the only possible one. So the narrator is asserting that Moxon is asserting that Spencer's definition, which he's about to give, is the very best one and could not possibly be changed. And here's the definition. Life, he says, that is Life, Moxon says, he, Spencer says, is a definite combination of heterogeneous changes, both simultaneous and successive in correspondence with external coexistences and sequences, which is not so easy to follow. Right. But anyway, life is a definite combination of heterogeneous changes. So like now I'm drinking a glass of water. Now I am taking a nap heterogeneous changes, both simultaneous and successive. I am waving my hands as you and I are speaking, Jesse, mm-hmm. in correspondence with external coexistences and sequences. That is, I'm doing it in correspondence with the fact that I know you and I are now talking at the same time and we're going to continue to for a bit. So that's the definition. Well, guess what, Jesse? Mm-hmm. Um, this definition appears in the 1864 volume two of uh, Spencer's uh, systematic philosophy, and that's the name of his book. And he revises that in 1867, and he finally revises it again in 1898, <laughs> which is, in fact, before um, this story is published. And when he revises it, when he revises it, he says, "Not a definition." He says, "A definite combination is exactly wrong." And he corrects his own definition. And Spencer writes, it has to be the definite combination because otherwise any definite combination would be life. And that clearly cannot be the case. Hmm. Now, he says that it said here he may have altered it afterward, but I've been unable to think of a single word that could be changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Spencer could think of a single word that could be changed from a to the. And if you feel we have the time, I can read you the passage from Spencer, which I tracked down. But the fact of the matter is that what the narrator is putting in Moxon's mouth, presumably Moxon really said it, but that's another question I'll get to shortly. What he's putting into Moxon's mouth would show that Moxon really has not been willing to revisit and think about the ideas that impressed him, even were they 30 years ago. Okay, so Moxon is not to be trusted, one would know, if one were, in fact, attentive to to Spencer. Now, there's more stuff here. And one of the things that that we get is that when the narrator has this notion walking out in the storm, oh, God, I've got to go back and learn more from from uh, Moxon. He says that he's imbued with this huge feeling of the the limitless importance of of understanding, which he says he gets from Lewis or Lewis. I don't know how that man pronounced pronounce his name, L-E-W-E-S, a relatively famous philosopher uh, from the period of uh, the same period as Spencer, a a proponent of Darwinism, meaning that these things happen automatically. 
not because God does them, um, and who's better known today as the uh, the life companion of George Eliot, that is Marianne Evans. Um, so we've got the title Moxon, somebody who doesn't believe in religion, right, denies it. We've got a great feeling of the significance of being of confronting a great idea quoted from a man known to favor Darwin over over religion. We have Moxon misquoting. Maybe it's, in fact, the narrator who's misquoting it. Um, Herbert Spencer's definition of life, the one that Herbert Spencer finally decides to settle on, the man who famously said survival of the fittest. Darwin himself never actually wrote that phrase. Spencer was was Darwin's great, great um, disciple and uh, popularizer. So we have again and again and again sort of anti-religious scientific sources in Moxon's mouth. But when our narrator chooses to go back, he says, the scales fell off my eyes like those of Saul on the road to Tarsus. So he's putting himself exactly in the religious position of someone who suddenly has, you know, the the visitation of God. Right? The narrator wants to be religious. Now, what is it the narrator finally sees when he invades the workshop to which no one is allowed to go in right, to, to enter? Um, what does he see? He sees the first time what seems to be just a one armed squat man with a fez on his head. And you see the one arm going um, while he's playing uh, chess. Right uh, now, that one armed man with a fez on his head is a clear reminder, a clear reminder of the famous Mechanical Turk, mm-hmm. which, which was a, a hoax perpetrated from about 1770 for about another 84, 85 years. Um, where it was asserted that there was a machine that could play chess and, in fact, beat people consistently. It was a a sideshow demonstration. It was a vaudeville sort of thing. Uh, It was, in fact, revealed that there were chess masters, a series of them, because it took, you know, it was exhibited over years. There was, in fact, a chess master all crunched up inside this thing and making the moves for the Mechanical Turk. That is to say, it wasn't a live machine. And everybody in 1899 knew the Mechanical Turk wasn't a live machine. The second time the narrator sees the Mechanical Turk, in fact, Moxon has checkmated him and the guy stands up and this time has two arms and reaches over toward toward uh, Moxon. The light is blown out by the uh, violence of arising. And when the lightning flashes, we have an image of etched in my mind forever, the narrator says, of those iron hands around Moxon's throat. So here's what I would like to suggest. One way to read this story is that, as in many Poe stories, the narrator is justifying himself. Haley, the man who explains to him what happened um, after his three days of unconsciousness, says of the narrator, you're going to have some explaining to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the narrator, in fact, can easily, I'm not saying it's definitive, but there would, and it's important that it's not definitive, but the narrator could easily, easily be seen as one of those Poe characters who is just more and more angry at people who have authority 
or people who have more skill or people who are more certain or people who just he, he just views them as better. And in fact, Moxon becomes his master and he just he can't stand it. So he goes back and he goes into a room he's not allowed to enter, which reminds us of the Oval Portrait, for example. And he sees those eyes and he when he the lightning strikes, he's looking down at his own hands mm -hmm. and then he blanks out. Now, you ask, you know, in something like uh, uh, a cask of Amontillado, the cask of Amontillado, you say, well, you know, why is it that Montresor kills his cousin? And we're just told in the briefest way at the beginning of that Poe story, for some insult he had done me. Well, in fact, the only thing we know about him is that he's a poor relation. Right? That's the only that is to say Montresor is a poor relation. Um, the, the, the murderer is the poor relation. Uh, Poe's characters again and again say that something out there is what commit the crimes that they themselves have done. In The Black Cat, it's the fiend intemperance. In every one of these, take it, take for example, The Telltale Heart, the Poe narrator who is driven to the, his murder by that evil eye he sees in the old man, in every one of these, it is as if we have a pre-Freudian character trying to kill a father figure. They are going someplace where they are not allowed. They are entering into bedrooms. They are going where they are forbidden. They are seeing things they are not to see, and they are so enraged that they hide those things from themselves by going dark, putting them up in a wall, um, burying them, and they are the killers trying to justify themselves. It seems to me we can read this story that way. I'm not saying we must, but we can, because it makes sense of his feeling, that is the narrator's feeling, that Moxon was not, in fact, taking enough time with him. That, in fact, although he does not admit it because he does not want to show himself to be unworthy, Moxon mocks him mm. by playing with him showing his erudition and preferring to be in the other room alone than with this fellow. That's a, that's a better theory than uh, all the one, other ones I read. <laughs> uh, well, one of, the, one, one of them uh, by Blyler, I believe you're familiar with this person. Um, I am. Uh, yeah. Was that, uh, that um, the robot was a woman, not... Uh, a robot and that uh, the scratches uh, that are implied to be from a woman turn out to actually be from a woman and that the narrator had been drinking with Moxon uh, very poorly evidenced in the story um, another uh, person interpreted that no it's not a woman it's a homosexual relationship <laughs> and that the robot is a man um and I don't like either of those theories because uh, I think uh, he says, well, you know, it, you don't even have to like that. It could just be a an, uh, unisexual experience. It's like, no. Um, I go back to the title, Moxon's Master, and I, I think that it can be done, in, interpreted in a bunch of ways. I think it's supposed to be. I think he's hinting uh, at the fact that, I mean, the, the very ending where he says... Um, it says, um, he says, thank you, Mr. Haley. Um, did you also save 
that charming product of your skill, the automaton chess player that murdered its inventor. Now, the way that's phrased is very interesting, and charming makes, you know, a number of interpretations, including that it's female, but wearing a fez. I mean, there's all sorts of problems here. But then he says, uh, Haley says, nothing for a time, and then finally gravely says, do you know that? And then the narrator replies, I do. I saw it done. As in, what? What does that mean? And then the final line, that was many years ago. If asked today, I should answer less confidently. Well, he's telling us this story that apparently happened many years ago. So this ending is incredibly not supporting any of the narrative. In fact, it, 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 it's asking us to undercut. So just the way that's phrased, do you know that? Well, the question that was asked is a question, not a statement. And then the reply, I do, as in I do know that, I saw it done. The rescue of the invention? Um, very interesting, right? I, I think this is very interesting, and, and I, I think that Haley... Again, a name not um, uh, without import in in illusion sense um, might have something something. I mean, he is a kind of a interesting figure. But I want to go back to just the framing of scenes. We've got this early scene where Moxon and the narrator, who, by the way, as far as I can tell, is never actually named a male. I just assumed it was a male, and you did in your uh earlier thing everybody does um and that's how you know the jealousy and the male uh homosexuality and the jealousy that right like all of that works out i don't i don't th i think that that might be a mistake because one of the things that's going on about the narrator is he is us in a certain sense too he is a viewpoint onto what moxon's doing and so when we've got this scene of of the narrator sitting in a room with Moxon and they're having this conversation and Moxon defeats uh, in a certain sense his protege or his would-be protege the protege stands up angrily and runs off right this mm -hmm. after having had a similar sort of hidden uh, confrontation in a in a parallel room when he, um, comes back and he sees uh, the two playing chess, the robot and the uh, moxen. The situation is very similar to what we saw earlier. We've got moxen making moves quickly and to whatever is near at hand, and the robot deliberately, carefully, but mechanically, artificially, and even theatrically responding. And when it's defeated, it attacks and um, chokes the life out of him. But I also want to point to another really interesting image. Um, people, yeah, and you you highlighted it too. Uh, the the you know the metal arms on the metal hands on the throat, right? But to me, even more disturbing, and I think even more interesting because of the, what happens immediately after, is not the iron hands on the throat, but the second part. 
his mouth wide open and his tongue thrust out, horrible contrast, exclamation point, than this, upon the painted face of his assassin, an expression of tranquil, tranquil and profound thought, as in the solution of a problem in chess. So, painted makes, you know, this is, this is not a mechanical face. It's a, you know, almost like a plate that's been placed over the, the head or the face of, of it, uh, the fez above. And in, the image of this uh, mechanical machine that's designed to defeat people in chess becoming enraged and frustrated but not being able to show that on its face because its face is merely painted makes me go back to the title and say, well, who is the master? Well, Moxon's, in a sense, he's defeated by his 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 creation, which makes this a Frankenstein story in a certain sense. But then, of course, Moxon's master is also God because in creating life... Um, and being uh, attacked by his own creation, the whole place burns down apparently due to a lightning strike, um, which also is a Frankensteinian motif as well. But what I like about this is there's no one way of absolutely determining, as far as I can tell, what the one intention of this story is. But I think that the, it, it's incredibly powerful and i'm struck struck by the image of of what the structure looks like and how those little touches those tiny little points can allow us to reinterpret the whole thing if the if the narrator has no gender then the narrator can be the reader as well whoever is reading it. Very interesting story. Indeed. I, I, I do like your pointing out that the, the narrator's gender is never made explicit by use of pronouns. Uh, certainly so many things in the story can be read more than one way, which is very much your point or one of your points. Uh, a painted face can be a painted woman, mm -hmm. uh, which is not simply that she's wearing makeup, but in 1899, rather a, a low woman whom one would not want to have anyone see that one had in one's home. Um, that we have four lines across Moxon's cheek the first time he goes into the workshop and emerges may mean that he was slapped and those are sharp fingernails mm -hmm. and the narrator makes reference to whether or not the fingernails should be clipped um but he does says say refer to the the creature as a he so um mm -hmm. it seems to me the narrator is asserting that the creature is a he whether the narrator is a he or a she i don't know if moxon uh, this is 1899 uh, we hear the, the narrator refers to uh, finding his blind way along the, the plank sidewalks and then the muddy, uh, unpaved road. It seems to me highly unlikely that a woman alone um, thought it appropriate to be in Moxon's house mm -hmm. in the middle of the night in a storm, or that Moxon, if he were really anything like a gentleman, um, would have uh, allowed that. But but I see your point. I see that it could be it could be a female narrator. I think your more important point is that indeed we can't be sure. But that's why I love that last line um, mm -hmm. when Haley says, "Do you know that?" 
I took him to be meaning, do you know that it's the automaton that killed its inventor? Right, right. And when he says, I do, when the narrator says, I do, and using your interpretation, almost like a marriage vow, I saw it done. To go back to a psychological analysis, uh, interpretation, he saw it done because this is what was in his eyes. Mm. He was looking down at his own hands. And he now that he is no longer young and ignorant, which he says is a blessing of the young because this happened long ago. Mm -hmm. So Oxen was older. He was younger. He was a young man. That was many years ago. If asked today, I should answer less confidently. Well, what would be the the alternative. I mean, it wouldn't be the alternative that that some other person killed Moxon because nowhere in the story do we have anything but two human beings and an automaton. Well, uh, some people claim that 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 Haley uh, is the murderer, which uh, the it, it was ridiculous. Yeah, that one doesn't work for me at all. No, not a, me either. Yeah. Uh, so then the question is, well, what is going on here? And I go back to a sort of Poe, untrustworthy narrator reading. I should answer less confidently, meaning I'm finally coming to sort of realize that, holy crap, maybe I killed this guy. But of course, he can't say it out loud because then he would be susceptible to arrest and punishment. But this is really bothering him because his relationship to Moxon was so powerful. And it has remained so in his mind, which is why I think for him, as for us, there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.